Welcome to the Ethics Experts, where we're elevating ethics and compliance and HR to the strategic level it's supposed to be. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Ethics Experts. If, you're, if it's your first time joining us, welcome. And if you're a returning subscriber, hey, bestie. Hope you're having an amazing day. The world is a better place because you're in it. You see what happens when you subscribe to the Ethics Experts. You get a bonus greeting on every single episode. So hit the subscribe button and join us as we change the world by making our workplaces better. Got a real treat for you today. I am here with Mita Malik. She is a DE&I champion. She's a business leader, author of a new book coming out called Reimagining Inclusion. And she's a top LinkedIn voice. So uh, this is a big get for the Ethics Experts. Welcome. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited for our conversation. So I've been following you on LinkedIn forever. I mean, you just oh. have this, uh, you're such a great storyteller. You're somebody who's so authentic in all of your posts. It's so encouraging. Um, I've seen your, your following skyrocket. Talk, I'd love to hear just kind of a little bit of your journey in this DEI space over the last several years, how you've been able to get your voice out there and what led to this uh, phenomenal book. I mean, this is going to skyrocket. I can just feel it. Oh my God. Thank you. I'm getting goosebumps. I have been, as I talk about in the beginning of the book, which thanks for taking a look at it. I know you have an advanced copy of it. I've been chasing inclusion my whole life. And so four years ago, I started writing the book. I had a lot of career journals, which are different than journals. I write by processing. I would write down a lot of experiences I was having at work things I was observing, highs and lows. And so I was able to go back and pull together the book in terms of an outline and reimagine inclusion, debunking 13 myths to transform your workplace and saying the quiet parts out loud about what holds us back from making meaningful progress in this work. But part of what I talk about is, yes, I'm good at writing, but writing is half talent, half discipline. And through LinkedIn, I've been actually able to like hone the craft of writing and actually see what resonates at the moment with my audience and what I may want to include in a book or in a future book. So have you always been a writer? Have you always been journaling throughout your whole life? Or oh. like, I've, I've just never heard about that career journal, but I feel like that's such a great, it's probably a great way been. to process things, you know? It is. Yeah. Actually, my story is when I left undergrad, a friend of mine at the time, one of my best friends found me an agent I wrote three novels that have been unpublished. I had an agent. I wrote a novel like every year and I'd get all this feedback, but I was really young and stubborn. And so I wouldn't change the book, <laughs> but I'd write another book. And then pro at the end of that, like three years went by and my agent dumped me in a really mean way over email. I won't say her name because she's like a very famous agent. And then I was like, what do I do with my life? Like, I love to write, but I can't make money off of it. And so then I ended up applying to graduate school to get an MBA. <laughs> But for me, writing and marketing, storytelling, is very, oh, wow, I could do marketing, right? And so then I ended up down that path. I then wrote a fourth novel. I don't make this stuff up. Didn't get that published. I wrote a nonfiction proposal, couldn't get that off the ground. And then I think it was years later, it was probably by my father's sudden death in 2017, where you start to, nothing like grief that starts to kind of reset the course of your life to say, what am I waiting for? What am I so scared of? So right. I started again. But I share that because I'm not an overnight success. And I want people to understand and know that, that I have been writing for a long time. So all of a sudden, one day, I didn't have a book that like was auctioned off and hit a bestseller list. I was, no, that's, that's not me, right? So this is, this is the real journey. So the path to success Publish. is write, write, a, write a series of novels and then yeah. go get an MBA and then yeah, uh, I know, figure right? it out. Yeah. Oh, but, <laughs> 
But it's just that I just wasn't going to stop or the universe wouldn't let me stop. Yeah. And so what is that drive in you to get this out? I mean, you know, I find that the best writers, it's like they have something in them they have to get out. My friend is on a podcast uh, and it's this this story that he's been getting out for years and years and years. And it's like it's like a drive or something. It is. It's something inside you. I feel more whole. I feel more healthy when I write. I write like 20 minutes a day. Some of it will never see the light of day. And that's cool. But I just I just enjoy it so much. I think part of it's how I process and see the world, too. And I wrote the book to make impact. Someone said to me, well, you actually don't have like a business. I have a full time job. I work at Carta as the head of DE&I there. She's like, so why are you writing a book? Because like you're not going to sell any workshops or services through it. I'm like, whatever happened to just writing a book yeah. to impact and change people's lives? But the, the publishing industry has changed. And there's no knock to people who have businesses and books. I think that's a great tool. I'm just not one of those people right now. And so that's really interesting too. I'm like, yeah, exactly to your point. It's like, I just have, a sh- I have many stories to share and I want to share them with the world. And there's a lot of those stories um, in this book. And I want to get, get to the book uh, here in a second, but I'd love to hear your path from MBA in marketing to now DE&I leader uh, within an organization and how that sort of prompted you to, you know, push this message out through LinkedIn and, you know, becoming a LinkedIn top voice is, is a big deal. And, and I think yeah. you're, you're deserving of it because you're super consistent. And again, your storytelling is, you know, phenomenal. Oh, thank you. For me, inclusion has always been a driver of the business. I was a marketer for many years. I still consider myself a marketer, but always consumer product goods. And I always wondered like whose story gets told and why, like who gets to be on screen and why I remember being at a color cosmetics company working on this, like incredible line of eyeshadows. They didn't work on my skin tone. And I said to the director at the time, I said, well, this doesn't work on my skin tone. Can we add more pigment? And the response was like, we add more pigment. The cost goes up. No one's going to buy it. And I said, well, how do you know that? Right. Well, you're like, I'm not going to buy it. You know? Yeah. I'm not going to buy it, but (laughs) it's always, no matter what I did, I always encountered these moments at work where I didn't feel like I was represented in what we were selling. And so that always stayed with me. And so when I had my first opportunity to do this work, I thought, well, I could really be a change maker. People come into this work from all different ways. Some people have grown up in HR. Some people have a legal background. For me, I was from the business and I have a different view. I can't unlearn the things I've learned as a business leader or marketer. And I think that's been advantageous coming into the work of diversity, equity, and inclusion. So you told a story in the book about... um kickball and how Mm. so many of us feel like outsiders in that kind of a moment. In my whole life, I felt like an outsider. My dad is a Cuban refugee and I just always felt different and, Mm -hmm. you know, excluded in some ways. And, um, so talk to me a little bit about like what is going to sound stupid maybe, but like what is inclusion and what does everybody get wrong about it? I think that story Mm. was really kind of boiled it down to me at least. Well, we all chase inclusion, right? This idea of inclusion and what it means. And we don't talk enough about what it means to feel the opposite, which is excluded. And so, God, you said kickball and I kind of whiplash because I still have trauma. I hate work events that require any sort of athletic ability because <laughs> I can run fast, but that's it. I'm not coordinated at all. So like, yeah, can run and that's about it. But yeah, I have a story that you remember from the book, which is about elementary school and always being picked last for the kickball team. And so what I want people who are listening to think about is anyone listening right now, you can 
stop and recall a time when you were excluded. And I don't care who you are. And it could be in your childhood. It could be currently at work, especially at work. It's like, we weren't invited to that meeting. It's my project. Did you hear these people went on a golf retreat? Did you hear that so-and-so had a drinks event with the CFO? Did you hear, did you like, there's so many moments, big and small, that that happens. And it's such God, it hits you here, right? Totally, yeah. And it's such a crappy feeling. And so, like, why would we ever want anyone to feel that way? We actually don't, right, once we felt that way. And so that's where I think we've lost the plot, particularly when we think about this backlash happening right now in diversity, equity, inclusion. Because you asked me, like, what is inclusion? Inclusion is I work for you. I feel valued, seen, recognized. My contributions matter. And I feel like I belong. And that is the biggest retention tool we have right now. Because once I feel that way, like... Yeah, maybe they come around with another offer for $100,000. I might consider it. I'm not going to really consider leaving for 10, 20, 30,000. And sometimes there's no amount of money. Like belonging is priceless, totally. right? Sometimes there's no amount of money that can lure someone away cuz this I found my place. I well, found my place. It's so, you know, you mentioned this backlash and I think it's so uh, interesting and I I'd, I'd love to hear your perspective on it, but everything you just described to me is so you know, basic common sense, you know, we're in a knowledge work economy where we are our work. The assets sure. aren't these massive machines, they're human beings. Yeah. Why is it turning into a bad word for an organization to prioritize people feeling like a part of it, feeling belonging? It's bizarre. Because we've been, we're weaponizing it. And you go back to LinkedIn, you go back to social media. A lot of what gets the most likes is fear, right? The extremes that gets likes. And so it's very easy to shut something down when you can other it and keep it at a distance, right? Like, you seem different to me. You have a different life experience. Eh, okay, just push that away, right? right? right. It's woke. It's anti-woke. It's political. It's apolitical. One of the things when I talk to leaders and they say to me, oh, Mita, I don't know if I, we should talk about this. I don't know if I should post about this. I don't know if I should write that company letter. It seems just too political. And I always coach leaders to say, well, isn't it through the lens of privilege that we can say something as political, Black Lives Matter, anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, anti-LGBTQ legislation, anti-Asian hate crimes? I would venture to guess that somebody who identifies with any of those groups would not say it's political. They would say it's human rights and it's a matter of life and death and hurt and harm. So it's like through the lens in which we can label these things. And so that's where I think the fear, it's very easy to scare people <laughs> into pushing things away. It doesn't work, I believe, in the long term, but certainly short term it well, works. You know, you mentioned this otherism and I've just found it <clears throat> like... Even in a group of three, you know, my son is 10 and like in a group of him and two friends, there's always one that's kind of on the outside. So it's like, it's almost like in us to have this like tribalism and this otherism. And even within an organization, you see it, it you know, across departments. Yes. I, it's, you know, it's like a perpetual like struggle to like knock down these walls and remind us that, you know, you know, again, I'm going to use the analogy of, of an organization, but like you know, if marketing and sales are kind of getting, letting some of that otherism creep in, we have yes. to remind ourselves that like, Hey, we're all wearing the same Jersey. And you awesome. know, that can translate out yeah. into, you know, otherism between different groups, but at our core, we're all human beings. Like how Absolutely. do we overcome this, this propensity mm -hmm. for otherism, like on a macro level, you know? Well, the question is, is what are you so afraid of? 
Yeah, right. I think that is what the question. What are you so afraid of? What are you so threatened by? The marketing and sales one, being a marketer, is a great example, right? It's like, what are you so afraid of? What are you so scared of? Because if you can get to the root of that, because usually there is, when I, when I can coach leaders through this, there's something that's happened somewhere along the way that has shut them down. Mm. And so the job is to, and sometimes they've locked the door and thrown the key away and you're trying to get them to reopen the door, but something has happened somewhere along the way. And it's one experience with one person personally or professionally. And this is where stereotype comes in. And so they're like, close themselves off. And so how can you actually get them to process the fear and move forward? Yeah. I guess that fear leads to this, um, kind of caged animal response where it's like, you know, um, which is, which is kind of interesting because, you know, we can have sort of mental assent to all of these things and say, yes, I agree with that. But then like in a firefight or in the, you know, in, in one of those hot scenarios, people revert back to these sort of more base responses. And, um, to your point, I think it is kind of fear-based. So having that kind of a conversation is great. And, you know, how does an organization build that, you know, that muscle so that when that is creeping up, we can stop and pause and like step out of it and observe it to diagnose what's at the root of it. You know, I think that's a great question. There are some people that can be coached and that they should have an opportunity to say, stay. And then there's other people that shouldn't. And I'm going to just say that really boldly. Um, one of the myths I talk about is, you know, we protect the a-holes because our businesses wouldn't run without them. And whew, sometimes we give too many chances to meet up because I work for you and you came to my daughter's wedding. Right. On you for 30 years. We were in undergrad together. So no matter what people say about Mita, you have this blind spot. You, you cannot believe the feedback that's being given. You can't believe that five women of color left her team in 10 days. You know, where there's smoke, there's fire. You can't believe all the feedback and you just keep giving her chances. Coach after coach after coach, different assignments, different teams. And the end result is still the same. And I say, and I don't say this, this is very famously, famously said, hurt people hurt people. Mm-hmm. So if I am so hurt, and I lash out continuously at work, it's not coaching. It's likely deep therapy I need, and I likely need to leave the organization and figure out what's next for me and need to stop hurting people in the company. Um, I'm glad you talked about this one because, I mean, literally all of these are so so great. They're so smart. Um, You know, what I really love about the book is that you can literally open it up to any chapter, and you frame out the myth really well, but then it's not just uh, a bunch of pontificating. There's actionable steps on how, on things that, like, leaders can do to, you know, examine their blind spots and examine, you know, how they might be inadvertently contributing to, you know, a lack of inclusion in their organization. For the A-holes one, I just find that so, so interesting. And I'm sure that I'm like guilty of all of these at some level. You know what I'm saying? Um, but the a-holes one, I just find it interesting because it's like, yeah, but you don't know them. You know, it's like, yeah, I know they're a little rough around the edges, but what what would our business do without them? Or like this person has, you know, become indispensable. And I think it's, uh, you know, this is a broad brushstroke and that's all I seem to paint with. But it seems like um, what 
again, it's kind of coming back to fear. I can't, you know, mm. I'm so scared of this person leaving. Well, in actuality, yes. people can leave at, at any point in time, right? Like people are not compelled to be in an organization and like very few organizations are truly at risk of like dying because one person leaves, like beyond a certain size, you know? And yet that fear, uh, the fear of the future or the fear of, you know, uh, the change or whatever just allows us to compromise. And, you know, what I find, you know, what I found interesting about your answer just now was how important it is for leaders not only to be open to self-examination, but also to be open to feedback from other folks, which means that we have to create environments where people feel comfortable speaking up Absolutely. about what they're experiencing. Absolutely. You know? I mean, let's be real. If I'm your chief marketing officer on your executive team, I'm not the one running the business. The people in the business are running the business. 100%. And if I am an a-hole, the pattern I see is that they're also very good at managing up right. and sort of creating this narrative that they are indispensable. And it's often, because we're human, our personal relationships that get in the way because we have a history. And I have gone with you to many different companies you've started. Right. And like our families know each other. Right. And so there's a lot of courage that that takes to say, actually, you need to move on. Like this can no longer be. That's a it's. I've seen it play over, over and over and over again. And so the question is, it's like, wow, you're willing to risk all these people for Mita. Well, all these people will walk out the door, but you'll keep Mita. Well, and um, I used to work for someone that was like this. I mean, people would will be walking by at like uh, like a happy hour and mm -hmm. who didn't know each other and they would overhear the one guy's name and they would become fast friends because of their mutual <laughs> hate for this individual. Yeah, it's just bonding. Yeah, right? you could bond over like this common enemy. I've been but, this, yeah. But like the next layer of it is there was so much value destruction from this one person and it was like the, you know, his boss would never do anything to get rid of him because you because he had you know he he was like Rasputin you know what I'm saying like <laughs> speaking in the ear of Tsar Nicholas you know um, like controlling oh, this gosh. empire it was Amazing. wild um, but it's like this leader had blinders on to mm -hmm. the real damage that that this individual was causing and when this guy ended up moving on it was crazy it was like everything just started running more smoothly and yes. um, it was frustrating for a lot of folks and to your point like a lot of people just left because. You know, they didn't, it was so toxic, you know, but, um, you know, it's crazy that, you know, sometimes the eyes aren't opened or maybe they never get opened, but like the point is things didn't all fall apart because this, you know, mm -hmm. there's no linchpin to your point in an organization. It's absolutely the, the collective, you know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. So Oof. what, um, I don't know which one of these to jump to. I mean, there's so many good ones in here. Um, I really liked, uh, I liked this initial story the Black Lives Matter story. So the myth number one is, of course, I support Black Lives Matter. Why are you asking if I have any black friends? And if you don't mind, I'd love to hear, I'd love for you to tell that story because uh, you kind of captured that that moment really, really well. And I thought that, you know, I'm just like picturing myself there and how you let those sort of silences really kind of convey the message. Tell us that story and what that individual was getting wrong. So... Oof. This is the diversity tipping point, which was coined by Diverse Engaged period of May 2020 when companies started to say black lives do matter. And it was in that moment that a leader, which is not uncommon, people want to share and post on social media. This white leader, he was trying to find an image around black lives matter. And so the image he found just I was like, this doesn't make any sense, but I'm asking him questions and 
And I asked him a question that was something along the lines of, how do your black friends and colleagues feel about this? Like, have you talked to them? And then he said, well, why are you asking if I have any black friends and like stormed out the door? It's like, I didn't ask that question, but, and it goes to the point that we are doing this work backwards. Right. We are chasing inclusion at our conference room tables. It starts at our kitchen room tables. It starts in our home and our communities. We're spending billions of dollars in the U S alone on diversity, equity, inclusion efforts, speakers, programs, workshops, and guess what? It's about, at the end of the day, who I spend my time out, time with outside of work and the relationships I have and the lived experiences I've access to that are not my own. Because again, if I'm on your C-suite, I'm a CMO working for you. And actually, guess what? We have strong diversity representation in the marketing team. That's great. But the question you need to ask is, if I'm I fit to lead that team? Am I fit to lead that team? And that's what I think we really need to be talking about how so many of us in this country are still self-segregating. Mm. And if we're doing that, how do we actually show up at work and expect to lead diverse teams? Yeah, that's actually a pretty good point. Um, yeah, I mean, if you're self-segregating, how can whatever you do not be somewhat synthetic? Mm-hmm. You know, you're mm-hmm. pulling from all of these... Um, well, you're, you're pulling from media. Yeah, right. Film, TV, books. And not that books aren't great. I've written a book, right? But what I'm saying is that if you only have one or two sources, you start to stereotype communities, whether you realize it or not. If you don't actually think about, right, let me get access to a lived experience that's not my own. I've been very open, like in my journey in this work, I actually realized I didn't know any veterans. Like, I didn't know anybody who had served in our country. And I was like, that's kind of like, I'm going to say that out loud. There's like embarrassment and shame in that. But then very quickly ended up volunteering for a nonprofit that was helping veterans who were transitioning back into corporate, transitioning for the first time into corporate spaces. And so like, I was like, I have to make an intentional effort here. Right. This is important to me to get to know individuals who have served our country. And so you have to just say those things out loud. And when you can, then you can actually start to, okay, what can I do about this? Yeah, it's like you can like admit that there's some deficiency and then once that is admitted, then you can start to take those actions. And you know, those other you know, those other data points we just talked about that folks pull from, what's lacking in all of those, which inevitably obviously leads to a stereotype is that there's no conversation there. And there's what no I've found is that if you're willing to ask questions and you're coming, you know, if you're like evaporating away any defensiveness or fear, back yes. to your point, and yeah. you're coming with true curiosity, I think people are super forthcoming about what their experience is, and you can start to have that journey, or you can start to embark on that journey of like understanding, which is really kind of driving the empathy that allows us to build authentic inclusion in our organizations. Absolutely. You're not tokenizing, you're not shaming, naming, blaming. You're building a a true friendship with somebody who is from a community you'd identify with, and you build trust in that relationship. So when you have questions and things come up, you can go back to that person. And that's not to say, because I am your... South Asian friend, I know everything about women of color and South Asian women. That's not what I'm saying either, but it starts to broaden your worldview just a little bit. Yeah. And, you know, our workplaces aren't segregated. Our marketplaces aren't segregated. So no. we have to, again, if we're going to be, I mean, you could even get super like econ about it and, or, you know, you know, from a governance perspective, it's our fiduciary mm-hmm. duty to employ the assets of our organization in the most efficient Absolutely. way possible. So then thus you have to understand 
who you're selling to or who's working with you and so forth. Um, you know, there's myth, myth number seven is uh, we need more people of color in leadership. Let's launch a mentorship program. And so I do want to dive into that. But this one I thought kind of spoke to, um, you know, like that sounds like a well, in, you know, many of these, these sound like really well intending things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but there's some blind spot and there's, or there's some maybe inherent bias or something uh, in that. So which then leads people with that other response, which you, you, you talk about kind of throughout the book of like, well, people are just, just too sensitive. So let's like use that as this, you know, microcosm of this issue that I think if we can, you know, understand and unpack a little bit, we might be able to make mm. some progress on, you know? Yes. I love what you just said, because every myth in this book almost is well-intentioned. That's the whole point, right? And in this particular myth, I have said very famously, and I get flack for it, I've been over-mentored and under-sponsored in my career. I will say that again, over-mentored and under-sponsored in my career. And what I mean by that is I wouldn't be on this podcast here with you today. I wouldn't have been invited by you and your team. I wouldn't be writing a book. If I didn't have a lot of great mentors, of course I have amazing mentors. And they played an important role in my life and my career. But sponsorship is different. Sponsorship is about having someone who is likely two levels senior to you in your organization, they have a large team, they have a large budget, and guess what? They're in the room when decisions about you and your career are being made and the right. doors are closed. And yes, that's happening. I was so naive when I started corporate America. I was like, that's happening. People are talking about me buying closed doors. Yeah, it's called talent calibration, right? And it's like Fortune 50 companies, the favorite thing to do, talk about. And so you've got to have, especially, oh my God, my biggest piece of advice is don't tie your fortunes to the one boss. Correct. I've had really great bosses and really not so great bosses. So you need other career sponsors. And so that is what I put forward in this book to say, particularly when it comes to people of color and representation at C-suites, boardrooms, leadership team. Well, wouldn't we have better representation if mentorship was working? I don't know. Interesting. Yeah, good question. What, in what in what form is it working? And then how is sponsorship different? Those are things to think about because I do think mentorship programs is like the catch-all. Oh my God, we're losing people of launch a mentorship program. Yeah, silver bullet. We want to reward someone. Employee resource group, launch a mentorship program. We have a new LND lead. Can you help us launch a mentorship program? It's like constant what I hear, you know, throughout my career. Um, in my first corporate job, there was like an embedded like forced mentorship. Oh, and I just couldn't find that to be any less valuable. <laughs> like it was yeah. such a waste. I, I heard, um, I was constantly told this is, this is absolutely true. I was telling, you know, I would tell my mentors what my dreams were. And I was literally told to a person I've had, you know, four or five of them over the years I was there. That's never going to happen. That's never going to happen. So it's like, what, how, like, what first of all, of how mentor is that? that's what I'm saying. A dream crusher. Totally. I mean, that's what it was. And it, and it was a real fuel. Like it turned into a fuel yeah. for me because I wanted to like prove these people wrong. But like, I've always felt like I have to prove the world wrong or something like that. But like, to your point, that is such a dream crusher. And obviously just that mentorship program, at least in my case, it wasn't like super valuable for me. I mean, there were, you know, nuggets of things here and there, but I look back on it years, years later as kind of a joke, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so what's the answer there? Like, how would someone of color, for example, um, get that sponsorship? 
Yeah, that's a great question. So in my role, I've actually helped curate programs like sponsorship programs, match people up based on the work. And so this is my biggest piece of advice. This is not a Taylor Swift concert. We're not giving out friendship bracelets. And I'd be like, will you be my sponsor? That's not how this works. Right. And so how it works is I'll give you an example back from my marketing days. You probably remember this example in reimagine inclusion, but I'm a senior marketing manager. You're my boss. You've said to me, Hey, Mita, can you like review for the last year, the investments we made in media? I'd like to see what the ROI is particularly for these channels. Great. Okay. Who's going to be interested in this work other than me and you. And here's the big mistake I made in my career. Proud daughter of Indian immigrant parents. My dad, rest in peace, would always say, keep your head down, work hard, stay out of trouble. You'll be recognized. I always was like this with my head down versus like, oh, let me think strategically who else needs to know about this work. Who else needs to know about that work is probably the CFO or someone in the finance department. And so what that means is depending on the size of the organization, it might not be the CFO, it might be a VP of finance. I'm going to put time on her calendar. I have this project that my boss has asked me to work on, I'd love to get your advice and input. So I come with prepared work. I get them excited about it. They ask me some questions. I say, Hey, you know what? I'm going to put time back in four weeks because I want to come back with your answers. Okay, great. Go back again in four weeks. Wow. I really like how you put that together. I like how you answer this question. Actually, I have a team meeting in two weeks. Would you come and present at my team meeting? Do you see what I'm doing? Yeah. And so I buy it's co-signing totally right. They, they feel like this is their project too. So guess what? We're in the room. I'm being calibrated. You present me. Anyone else have any feedback on Mita? All of a sudden, Sally, the VP of finance is like, Mita should be promoted. And here's why. So even if you're advocating for me, which you would, if you were my boss, it's sometimes it's not enough. Totally. One voice isn't enough. If you're a detractor, forget it. But if you're advocating for me, you're like, oh gosh, now it's easier to get Mita promoted because Sally signed off too. Yeah, it makes it easier for your boss, to your point. Absolutely. And what I like about what you're saying is it is a really high agency approach to managing mm. your career path. Yes. And it's not letting the impediments in the world that are maybe structural or systemic or whatever you want to call it prevent you from achieving those goals. It's a really yeah. smart and tactful way. And it's not subversive and it's not underhanded. It's just smart. About the work. It's 100%. about the work. It's not like, hey, let's get coffee and tell me about your career. Hey, let's get coffee. Exactly. I want to speak at this conference, which I'm not saying is not valid. It's just different. And I also don't want people to take away that I'm telling you to get 10 career sponsors. I'm not saying that. You just need one or two. That's right. You just need one or two. Well, and it's also, you know, you said it's about the work and it's a, it's really about bringing value and showing your value. Absolutely. And you had a post yeah. a couple of weeks or months ago about like how obnoxious it is. I think of people saying, Hey, I want to pick your brain. And that's oh, such yeah. like a taking, that's, that's a, such yeah. a taking of value thing. And it's really relying on your uh, altruism, which is fine in some cases, but that's not a sustainable way to build a career. Absolutely. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Oh my God. I get so much flack about that picking your brain post, but really? listen, if I know you, you can pick my brain. The whole point is if you don't know me and you're asking for, can you come speak for free with your book? Can you do some DEI consulting work for free. Can you, can you, can you? You're like, I actually have never heard from you before. Yeah. And I also have like a life and I have a job yeah. and I'm writing a book and I'm and writing. And so I'm like, yeah. huh. I mean. Thank you. Yeah. So uh, I think I gave a, nut, a really big heart to that post because uh, oh, that resonated you. with me. But um, why do people tend to lean on, I mean, it's just kind of a weaker approach that, 
hey, let's meet for coffee or will you meet for coffee and tell me about your career versus leaning into, you know, uh, a path where it, where the catalyst or the focal point is it being about to work, the work. Why do you think that is? Do you think it's just, it's easier, it's, you know, it feels more secure, it's kind of showing your neck a little bit or like, why do you mm-hmm. think that is? I think because, at least for me, I didn't think I had permission. You don't need permission. The company hired you for your expertise. So go help the company reach its potential and you reach your potential. And nothing that we talked about earlier, nothing that we do at work is alone, right? If you're in a corporation, it's a team sport. It's highly matrixed. And so your boss likely is, in most cases, going to be happy that you reached out to cross-functionals. It makes, in this case, it makes you look great too. Right. And so maybe it's because we're scared that we don't have permission. We should stay in our lane and keep our oh, head well, down. He just, he just asked me to do this. So let me just do this and get it done versus, oh, let me stop and think. You know, the other mistake I would make too in an analysis like, analysis like that, I'd spend all weekend on it. And then someone Monday morning would tell me, oh, you know, Bob also did that analysis. Like he could have helped you. And you're like, what? But it's because maybe because it, for me, it was insecure and not confident. And so I just would kind of, stay in my little cubicle working in my lane. Yeah. And I think that that can be so frustrating and it can leave you so jaded to kind of count on getting noticed. Mm -hmm. And I think in today's world, and maybe this has always been true, but I'll just say it seems at least true right now that everybody, I don't want to say everybody's so self-absorbed, but I just think people are like more stressed than they've ever been. It feels like everyone's super overloaded. We have notifications coming in across all these devices and um, Mm. it's a lot harder to just naturally get noticed. You have to get yourself noticed kind of. Absolutely. I like what you said earlier too. It's the coffee conversation is safer and showing you my deck is vulnerable because you might actually not like it. You might actually ask me to redo all of it you might actually bring up questions that I hadn't thought of and now do I feel stupid. Right. But that's that's work. That's how we get better as leaders. Yeah, have and you're going to have those feedback. thoughts regardless when you see yes. it, you know what I'm saying? Right. Um yes. and you can at least, you know, at least for me as a leader, genuine effort is really what I'm looking for first and foremost. And someone who's willing to kind of go that that extra mile and hey, am I getting this right? To your point, a business is trying to create value and that's the sum total of all these individuals creating value in yeah. their little pockets of the of the of the world, you know? Absolutely. I used to also think all of these leaders were gods. Mm. Right? Like if I looked at them, it was like Medusa and I'd turn to stone. Like I was like, oh my God. Right. You're going into the executive right. room. Right. And you're like, no, they're humans just like us. They were once in my role and I'm actually making their jobs better by doing this work. So go reach out to the VP of finance and show them your work. They're probably going to be delighted, but we don't think that way because, oh, that person's too senior. Why would they be interested in what I have to say? I'm not adding value in the same way. No, I mean, let's get, let's, let's get real. By the time you get to a really senior role, you're an, you're the orchestrator. You're the conductor of the orchestra. Like, you have enough expertise, but you're no longer doing the work. You're directing other people to do it. So, of course, they'd be delighted, I believe. Yeah. Any good leader. That's been my experience for sure. And, you know, kind of to your point, everybody goes home and watches the same shows on Netflix. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Everyone has the same insecurities regardless of your yes. age or what your status yes. is. And mm-hmm. um, I worked really closely with a guy who was worth, like, hundreds of millions of dollars. And I just kind of always thought, like, well, at that point, you're a titan of industry – 
Yeah. You're unflappable. And, and I mean, he was just a guy, you know, and mm-hmm. he was a, yeah. a successful guy, but he was just a human and he had the same ups and downs that like we all have. And it just, uh, it was really an, an eye opener for me. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit about your journey from, you know, I have a friend, uh, from India as well, or his family, you know, uh, his, his, I think both of his parents were, uh, Indian immigrants and he was told the same thing, keep your head down, work hard. And he got to the point where, you know, he kind of journeyed from that, that kind of keep my head down type of a mentality to, you know, more boldness and being able to take, you know, speak up or something, you know, like, uh, to make his voice heard. And it sounds like you've kind of had that same journey. Can you share a little bit about when your eyes were opened and what sort of was the catalyst for you to, you know, metamorphosize from that sort of rule of thumb to where you're at now? My immigrant parents, Indian immigrant parents gave me a lot of great gifts. They didn't always serve me well in corporate America. Uh, like a crazy work ethic. I could probably outwork you, but I didn't work very smart. Right. Didn't work very smart. Didn't understand politics or managing up. Didn't think that was important. Thought my work would speak for itself. It's like making a piece of content, watching in your bedroom all day long. No one ever sees it. Right. Never taught me to quit. You don't quit people's spaces, places. You don't quit projects. So here you are silently working on something where the company's priorities have shifted. So I, I can go on and on, but I quickly realized that a lot of these gifts weren't valued in corporate America. I had to think about it a bit differently. One of my f- very first memories in a corporate assignment was I joined this company, was in marketing. I was like so excited. It was like my dream job. And like, you know, when you feel like you're killing it, walking into work with the swag, I'm like, I love this job. Sunglasses on. Brand to work on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I'll never forget uh, my manager at the time. And yes, I will be judgmental. He came over to my cubicle and he was wearing like the ugliest Hawaiian print t-shirt. I remember this, right? He's like, Hey, do a few minutes. He pulls me into this conference room and he's like, we came out of talent review, you know, those famous talent reviews yeah. and closed doors. And he said, I just had some feedback to give you. Um, you're a wallflower here. No one knows what you're working on or doing. I know the lights are on, but sometimes we wonder if someone's home, which that was interesting. Yikes. And he said, you're never going to become a manager, never mind a director here. And this company hired people because they said, okay, I'm hiring you because I believe you can become a director at some point. And I was devastated because totally. that feedback came from out of nowhere. And my friend, Jill Katz. In a Hawaiian shirt, no less. Like it was print. It was like color print. It was, it was, I'm like, are we in Maui? Like what is going on? It was very interesting. But I'll never forget. It's like seared in my mind. And my friend, Jill Cat says, you know, you give feedback with candor, courage, and care, mm. right? And so there was a lot of candor and courage, certainly no care. And I was really devastated because I was like, I want to lead teams. I want to lead people. Like, this is why I joined. I want to create great campaigns and products and tell stories. And so after I downed a pint of Ben and Jerry's that night, I realized he was right. And that's is, like, oh, he was right. Is it, he was right. Isn't that crazy that that post pint clarity. Yes. The post pint clarity. Like, <laughs> oh, Cause I give myself a day to feel sorry for myself. Give myself a day. This happened to me. Terrible. It's not fair. Oh, oh, not fair. The world sucks. And you're like, okay, no, let's move on. You, you can do that for a day, but he was right. I needed to practice using my voice. And so I did that a lot. My husband will attest in her years of marriage, practicing and, em- and empty living rooms, in the shower, in the car, practicing using the sound of my voice. 
practicing talking points, practicing questions people might ask me, practicing a question I want to ask. I would even actually, if I had to present tomorrow, well, tomorrow's the weekend, but if I had to present on Monday morning, Monday afternoon, I might get there early before anyone was in the building and I've done this and practice in the room. Yeah. Actually, I've gone in on a weekend. I know that's not, but I was so anxious about presenting. My friend and I once went into the building on a weekend. We were practicing each other's presentation because just to get comfortable. Totally, with feel the, the space. Feel especially the space, if it's a boardroom. Yeah. Yeah, especially yeah. if it's like a big boardroom. That can be intimidating early in your career, even now. Yeah, yeah. even now. And um, yeah, figuring out a way to kind of deal with those nerves so that you can present well. Um, not just a presentation, but just yourself, I think is super important. So good on you on that, on that journey. That's a, it's, a, it's probably a journey that you never get to the destination on. I don't, don't think, I don't, you know, I got to believe maybe, maybe Obama's, maybe this is a bad example, but like, you still got to have nerves at some point, you know, like I think you do, you just channel them positively. Like it's the agree. nervousness that gets excitement. Right. I mean, even now it's so funny. Even when I say present, no one presents anything in corporate America. You start to present and you get interrupted. You just facilitate a meeting. And so I learned that too. Recently I was coaching someone who keeps giving, getting the feedback that he's giving monologues. And mm. I think it's because he's anxious and nervous. Like I really relate to that. You have a 20 page deck. You're going to get through one slide totally. And they're just prepared to like answer the questions. I never, cause I would practice the 20 slides and I'm like, wait, what happened? They're like, no, but that's how it works. Right. You're um, not going to present anything. You're going to have to be able to field questions in the moment. Yeah. And you're going to be have to know the material well enough that you can drive the conversation. Exactly. And so to, to that sort of specific point, it's not about not having those 20 slides. You, you want of that course. backup. You want to be able yes. to speak to that stuff. But to your point, you got to keep it super high level and let that meeting go where, yes. where the audience wants to take it. You know, if it's yeah. going to actually be effective because it's only going to be effective to the extent that people get their questions answered yes. or you guide them appropriately, you know, absolutely. Um, you give this example of, um, our ad was not racist. Mm. It was simply a mistake. And you talk about the, uh, the T-Mobile ad where they interviewed a bunch of white people about what's the word that helps your, that makes you think of T-Mobile and everybody said ghetto and everybody's kind of laughing about it. And then, you know, talk to us about that story, that response and how that's kind of a great picture of this thing that we see happen all the time. And I want to also kind of tie it to this thing that kind of drives me nuts where it's like on July 1st, everyone's logos change. And on March 1st, everyone's logos change. And mm. how do we build authentic inclusive yes. cultures versus like leading and resist the like temptation of just kind of greenwashing our way through this and, you know, diversity take, washing. Yeah. 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 Diversity yeah. washing. Yeah. No. Yeah. Um, so in that story, it's sprint at the time. Oh, sprint. Right. Collect, right. But you're right. It is T-Mobile. They're trying to collect competitive, intelligent consumer insights about their competitor T-Mobile. And so the CEO is famously, you can all look up the video interviewing people on like a tour. And he says, T-Mobile, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? And someone says ghetto and they're all laughing and ghetto and they just keep going. Now, what ends up happening is the company ends up taking this clip and posts it as a part of their campaign. So they were closed door. I mean, they got everyone's consent to be on video, but they could have chosen not to show that clip. Yeah, they totally. Did. They chose it. That wasn't a live so video to your point. It wasn't a live video. It was part of their like focus groups going around the world, going around the country to learn more about how consumers felt about their, their cell phone carriers. And so what ends up transpiring over social media is quite fascinating because 
they post it, the CEO posts it, then CEO, and people come after them. But the CEO comes back to defend it and then defend it. And then finally was like, oh, well, if, if you are upset by this, we're sorry. And you're like, what? And so I have just watched too many leaders in my time, whether I'm working with them or watching it in the marketplace, people just won't accept that they've caused hurt or harm. It's not racist. It's not sexist. It's not homophobic. They're being too sensitive, like you said earlier. And it's like, okay, well, what if we just stopped and accept that it's true? Okay, let's just stop and say, actually, okay, it is racist. Let that sit for a second. And so now what are we going to do about it? But that's the biggest hurdle because then you think, why do these things keep happening in the marketplace? If we all paid attention and learned from them, then they wouldn't happen anymore. But they just, you know, we'll pick up our phones today. There's probably something we missed that we could have included in our conversation. But it's, and now with social media, it's 24-7 that we'll find out about some mistake, misstep in the marketplace. Yeah, you said that it's a, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting as people rise higher in an organization and as that organization gets bigger the -hmm. level of like disconnectedness just seems to skyrocket you know it's like they're so out of touch um and i love this example from um that show 30 rock where alec baldwin's character is this um i talk about this all the time because i just think it's such a great picture he's like this multi-million dollar you know multi-millionaire ceo of this division and he's like how much could a gallon of milk cost 40 dollars or something you know and it's like he's so disconnected he like hasn't bought a gallon of milk ever and i think as someone rises higher in in an organization they do start to kind of believe that like their stuff doesn't stink and like they can kind of do no wrong. They start to believe that they are the smartest person in the room. And in doing that, you just get so calloused, your empathy level, it it has to drop, right? Like how else could you maintain this lie to yourself that you're infallible? I mean, it's bizarre. Mm -hmm. And I'll say personally, as a marketer, I was raised to be arrogant in a corporate America who convinced me that my job is to know you so well that I can surprise, delight you with the product or service you didn't expect, enhance the quality of your life. But my job is to know you really well. And so when you say that a piece of content is racist, then that's questioning my capabilities as a marketer, right? And so that's where, because I actually don't know the history of you and your community as well as I thought, because in a time when people are more stressed than ever, shortcuts abound. And so we're not actually, do we really have the insight? And do we really know? Like, I'm always baffled when, you go back to the statistics where we know that Procter & Gamble has said there's over $5 trillion of spending power with the multicultural consumer. And that's not including veterans, individuals with disabilities, LGBTQ+, like so many dimensions of diversity. You want to sell authentically and purposely to the black community. You have no black representation on the team. Not within the, and not just the team, but the ecosystem yeah, right. of agencies and partners. And you're like, what? And I'm not saying, and, and by the way, black, one black person is not enough. Don't expect me, for example, as the woman of color to be the voice and the, the check the box for everything. I don't know how all women of color think. You need to have enough people that can really support and vet the idea, make sure it connects with the audience. Well, think back to that sprint ad. I mean, it's like, yeah. okay, everyone is taking all these clips. Someone put them all together. That was obviously viewed in a room before it went out. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and either there wasn't representation enough there or 
there wasn't an open enough culture, an open enough speak up culture for someone to say, uh, guys, we have a little bit of a blind spot yes. here. Like there's yeah. just like a ton of failures along the way to allow that to happen. You know, to your point, it wasn't like a yeah. live video that he was just like live streaming or something, you know, yeah. there was like I mean, intentionality listen, behind it. Yeah. And what I love about that example is I'll use myself as, as a LinkedIn top voice. I run my own account. People ask me that, right? If there's spelling mistakes, if I got it wrong, it's on me. I'm sorry. I'm tired. Doing my best mom day job as a mom day job at Carta and then the book, but it's me. It's one person. Right. And so your example is, wow, there were so many people that, that these things pass through in large organizations. It's not just Mita writing in the morning while she's drinking coffee, what she feels and hits post. Mm-mm. There's so many people. Right. And that's, what's fascinating. You're like, you all saw this and it still went out. Yeah. Or they just said, I'm just not, I don't feel comfortable enough to like question too. the God mm-hmm. of the company or whatever. There this. is. Or I talk about the whispers are the loudest. Yeah. I've been in many spaces where someone said something, they were perceived to be junior. They were shut down. We had enough sample size. That's not what the consumer told us. You shut know, up. We're talking about <laughs> you know? basically shut. Yeah. Basically. Um, do you think so I want to talk about two things. I guess one really quick one is I love this concept of like arguing the opposite. It's such a mm-hmm. great way if there's any kind of a conflict or you want to even do some self-reflection to say yes. like, well, I have this view. Can I sort of objectively argue the opposite and pretend that that thing might be true? And many, t- I just, I've never done it and not had some kind of a revelation. Why is that yes. so hard for folks, you think? Because it's questioning what I believe to be not true. Yeah. Oh my God, I'm not right. You know, one of the myths that I talk about in the book, which is really interesting, it's like, I'm all for diverse talent as long as they're good. Yeah, I wanted to get to that one too. Yeah, Yeah, so you think, do what you just did, your exercise, which I love. I'm all for diverse talent as long as they're good. Okay, so I would say to you, if you said that to me, are you all for non-diverse talent as long as they're good? Do we ever use that language, Mm -hmm. right? And so you start to like just question the things we say every day and you're like, hmm. So you hire me, go through this example, to be on your exec team. I'm leading a troubled part of the business. I'm the first woman of color on your team. And for all the reasons it didn't work out, I leave, move on. Are you more or less reluctant to hire another woman of color after me? Right. Now, another scenario. I'm going to pick on Jim. I don't know a Jim. I really don't think I know a Jim. So I'm going to use Jim as an example. White man joins your exec team. You have him lead a troubled part of the business doesn't work out for all the different reasons he moves on. Are you more or less reluctant to hire a white man again? And so these are the things, like you say, we have to ask ourselves like the different scenarios and sometimes question our thinking. Yeah. And it's, um, which again can kind of lead down to this, like you have to have the ability to like analyze yourself if you're ever going to uncover any of these biases Because I think like we all, I mean, if I'm like, I want to go on a date with my wife, I have some picture of that in my mind, or I want to hire this person. You just inevitably have some kind of a picture. And how do you make sure that you're not solving for that picture versus solving for some other more sort of thoughtful, you know, criteria list or something? You know what I mean? Absolutely. Um, What was the other one? You just, you, you, we just touched on two and I just... Again, this should have been three hours, this thing. No, it's fine. We talked about our ad wasn't racist. It was simply a mistake. And then I brought up, I'm all for diverse talent as long as they're good. Yeah. And so um, I think it was in that chapter, I'm probably getting this mixed up, but what I see is a lot of organizations where this DE&I title 
is several layers down. And it's like, oh, yes, how does that not inevitably lead to, yes. you know, color washing? What did you call it? Diversity washing or something? Diversity washing. Yes, yes, yes. Diversity washing. Yeah. So like, what would you tell an organization, um, you know, an executive team who at least, you know, uh, at least claims to care about this? How would you tell them to construct this type of a function in yeah, terms absolutely. of like where it reports and the power yeah. and so forth and how to measure like success and stuff like that? Inclusion is a driver of the business. So when you build it into everything, you just can't then cut it off like we're seeing now. Right. Right. Like all these chief diversity officer roles being terminated, individuals being let go. But what if you built it into how you view your workforce? You think about like I think about from a people standpoint, like building it into recruiting, talent management, performance management, promotions process, performance improvement plan process. You should have an inclusion lens into every people process you have, checks and balances, right? Second, we talked a lot about brands, products, and services. Who are you serving and why? And who are you ignoring and why? And if you tell me there's 0% growth to be had, you're not looking in the right places, Yeah, right. right? You're not thinking about who you have an opportunity to serve authentically. Third, supplier diversity. I think about that a lot. I've worked for many a Fortune 50 company where it's like we write the same $5 million check to the same agency. And you ask yourself, like, the lost opportunity of showing up in that ecosystem, writing checks to different people. I love to be someone's first partner, first customer, particularly Carta. That's meaningful. Totally. If I can say I was that Carta was a person's first customer, imagine how many more doors that opens, right? Yeah. It's like amazing. And then the fourth, it's like values. You can say you're going to stand for values. It goes back to diversity washing. Be careful to post something on Instagram that you're not going to follow through on. That, you know, I would say your employees are your forgot, forgotten consumer, right? Your employees are your forgotten consumer. We spend so much time thinking about the external piece, who we're going to sell, how much to, what, when, where, and why. Stop and say, if I post this, what would someone who works here think about it? Well, that brings up a really interesting point. And this is why I think... Um marketing folks make great kind of internal marketing folks, which is what mm. HR is or what D&I can be because there's been, to your point, this focus on the external stakeholder, the market, mm. who yes. I want to buy my product or whatever. Um, and But that internal, that external brand and your internal brand are really the same thing. They're just different. They they're just different sort of sides of yes. like the same membrane or something. Absolutely. You know what I'm saying? And so if those things are in conflict, well, then the whole thing is fake. And, yes. um, you know, someone told me this recently, but like a company, you know, a client is never going to love your company unless it's full of people who love that company first. And the, it has just been too, too, you know, again, to your point, it's <sighs> been such a, a neglected stakeholder yes. group. And it's like, hey, or just, you know, plug yourself into this, uh, into this machine and keep pressing this button. And it's like, well, that's not how anybody works anymore. And with labor mobility being so high, it's, there is such a massive cost of turnover. It's worth the investment to, to get it right because if these people can be, you know, advocates for your brand and guardians for your company, the business results are just going to follow. It's inevitable, you know? Yeah, they will be your fiercest advocates or they'll set little fires inside your company or externally. We'll go back to the Adidas case not too long Great ago. Great point, yep. The artist formerly known as Kanye West, anti-Black, anti-Semitic comments, Adidas sat on that for way too long. I talked about that and wrote about an ad week. And one of their employees shared on LinkedIn, post goes viral. She says, I can no longer be silent sitting here working for this company 
we're still in partnership, have signed on, are paying the artist known as formerly known as Kanye West, and everyone's silent. It's like it's not happening. Yeah, and I'm, I mean, talk about a risk. You know, again, like it's such a risk. Uh, like this is not the 1920s anymore where you could be dumping chemicals and like it's not going to get out because no one really has a means to get it out. Everybody can post something on Twitter or or anywhere else. We all have access to a microphone. Totally. Every single one totally. of us. And so it's worth that authentic pursuit of it. How do we kind of stop this train from going off the tracks? Because to your point, we're seeing a lot of these positions get deleted and we're seeing this get like, to me, overly politicized. I mean, there's nothing about inclusion in my book that is like so wild and like It's not. I mean, listen, you need people with conviction, leaders with conviction saying this is the right thing to do morally and for the business. We're not going to step away from it. It's so fascinating to me. If you signed a record number of clients this quarter, if you exceeded your revenue targets, if you had amazing cost savings, would you stop doing it? Yeah. No, you wouldn't. But when you build it into the infrastructure, it gets really difficult. Like all the examples I gave, you're like, oh, you're going to fire the chief diversity officer? Well, then who's going to help with all these people processes and products? Because a real chief diversity officer and I'm going to say real, meaning the company has set this person up for success. They've got budget, team, and resources, and they are also an internal thought leader and consultant. They're actually, they're actually, it's like the, the, the spider web. They're, they're everywhere. I mean, I have, I have like a thousand bosses. It's not my founder CEO. Every, I report to every person in the company, right? That's how I view my job. Mm-hmm. And so when you do that, it's, a, it's really hard to then say this role doesn't matter. Yeah, and it's really sad for those people whose jobs are getting deleted because anybody who gets that job, I'll just say anybody that I've met who's taken one of those jobs, they're well, they want to change the world. They want to make the world a better place. They want to, you know, fix these things. And I'm sure when they got that job or that job was advertised to them, it painted like this great picture and then they get in there and then they're pushing a rock up the hill and they can't drive any change. And it's just this kind of like bumper sticker on the car. There's no team. Yeah. It's not, it's not part of the engine. You know what I'm saying? It's not a piston in the engine. It's just Mm -hmm. a, an accoutrement or something, you know? Yes, absolutely. Well, this was so fun. You are, uh, you are the coolest real quick. What piece of advice do you wish you had? Let's go in the time machine, find a young Mita. What piece of advice do you wish you had sooner in your career? And you can't say any of the ones that you've already talked about. That's the rule. Oh, I don't think I said this before. If I did, you can... We'll delete it. Have me me rewind. No, I'm kidding. Have me rewind. (laughs) I posted this on LinkedIn recently since you enjoy my LinkedIn post. Oh, a letter to my younger self. Leave that toxic workplace sooner than you did. Watch for the signs. Nobody deserves to have pieces of themselves chipped away at. And so that doesn't mean we can all afford to just quit and walk out, just start making the steps. You know, one, where there's smoke, there's fire. Totally. It's not going to get better. And sometimes you have to realize, I wish when I was uh, probably more optimistic and younger in my career that I didn't have the power and privilege to make those changes. Right. And so sometimes you have to put yourself first. That's great advice. I mean, I, I've rarely pulled a weed in my, or I've rarely pulled, uh, what looks like to be a weed in my garden that didn't turn out to be a weed. You know what I'm saying? And, Ooh, I love that. Oh yeah. And there's not really many like abusive relationships that end up kind of turning around. You got to get out. You know what I'm saying? That's great advice. All right. So everybody pick out this, pick this book up, reimagining and or reimagine inclusion, debunking 13 myths, 
Um, we're going to be giving this away on our next uh, Ethics Verse. We have a oh. weekly webinar series, so we'll be giving this away, and we'll add it to the uh, Ethico Library. Really great to meet you. Um, thank you so much for coming on and sharing so much of your day with us. Thanks so much for your time, and thanks for reading the book. Time is a precious commodity. I appreciate you. Thank well, it's you. worth a, it's worth a read, and I just can't wait to read those unreleased novels. So let's oh, see what we yes, can do about that. Oh, yes, that's my those. next time. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be on next time talking about that. Thanks so much. See you next time. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.